0: Last week, Mel preached his last message as our lead pastor with a sermon titled, The Benediction. And I thought I'd have some fun with that and start my first message as lead pastor with a sermon called, The Introduction. Much has been written about the idea of introductions and first impressions. The magazine Esquire starts their article with these words, it takes a tenth of a second to form an impression when meeting someone for the first time, in the blink of an eye, We decide whether we like someone. We evaluate their personality and character. We classify them as trustworthy or unreliable. These first few seconds can influence our decision on who to hire, love, and trust. That is why making a good first impression is important, whether in business or an interpersonal setting. The Harvard Business Review, which puts out excellent resources, well worth checking out, says to have your talking points ready, be aware of your body language, and make sure to find something in common. In other words, have a good and engaging sermon intro. An author for Forbes writes, communicate your brand. Make sure to be memorable. We've had a number of introductions and first impressions around our church lately. Last week during the announcements, we were thrilled to announce that Abby and Conrad have moved from being interns to full-time directors of youth ministry. If you have kids or grandkids, nieces and nephews, even neighbors who are in grades 7 to 12, invite them to check out our youth ministry. These two are just fantastic. We also introduced you to Nathan Budge, our brand new technical director. But somehow a two-second video of him waving at a camera and saying, Hi, I'm Nathan, doesn't quite give you a picture of how great this young man is. So allow me to read to you his first email to our worship arts team. As we prepare to step into this new season of ministry together, I thought it would be helpful for many of you to introduce myself. For those of you who have not had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Nathan Budge, and I'm Ellerslie's new technical director. I've recently moved from Ontario to Edmonton, and I'm very excited to be a part of this already amazing team. I like long walks on the beach and enjoy afternoon high tea. Isn't that amazing? And ladies, he's single. I didn't change a single word of that email. That's how he virtually met a few dozen people for the very first time. But it tells you a bit about him, doesn't it? You learn where he's from. You see a politeness and a maturity. There's an excitement about being part of our team. And of course, some humor that I hope most people find winsome. One of the things that most stood out to me personally about Nathan was probably a throwaway line on his part. We were talking about long-term tech needs for our building and how we might plan to do a phased approach of implementation and bring everything together into a cohesive whole. And do you know what he said next? Oh, I plan on being here a long time. I didn't ask him how long he was planning on sticking around. I don't recall talking to him about expectations on length of tenure. That comment was freely offered and freely received. Oh, I plan to be here a long time. There's certainly going to be challenges. There's going to be good times and bad. There's going to be a steep learning curve and incredible God breakthroughs. And I hope, Nathan, is part of our journey here at Ellerslie for many years. My friends, I too hope to be here for a very long time. I hope to see us grow as people of influence in our workplaces, our schools, our communities, and invite people to explore the life-changing good news of Jesus. I hope to fill our baptism tank so often that we're going to have to call for a special offering just to pay the water bill. I hope that we are so good at including people in the foyer that every single person who calls Ellerslie home has a group of great Christian friends they can do life with. I hope that our children's ministry is so full of kids that we have to have a building project. And I hope that we are so good at investing in God's kingdom that the money comes flowing in because we can think of nothing better than spending money on making Jesus famous and bringing him into life. I also like long walks on the beach and afternoon high tea. My friends, over the last month, I have often found myself in the same room as Mel and have heard wonderful things spoken about him and his wife, LaDonna. The board gave him a beautiful tribute. We celebrated him and LaDonna at our final staff meeting. There was a long line of people talking to them in church last Sunday, and the farewell last week was a joy to watch. Mel leaves awfully big shoes to fill, and if you're expecting me to be like him, you're going to be disappointed. But here's the good news. I don't need to stand in Mel's shoes. I have the privilege of standing on his shoulders and on Sam Brakey's before him and Ed Stuckey before him and all the pastors who have gone before and helped shape our church to where it is today. So let us not waste this moment for God has put all of us here for such a time as this. I'm excited to join with you. We're going to have a lot of fun, but it's also going to be a lot of work, which is why our next sermon series is on the book of 1 Peter. We're going to talk about perseverance, grit, resilience. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're watching on our online platform, you'll notice a little Bible button for you to press. 1 Peter is in the New Testament, which means it takes place after the birth of Jesus. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. Since our sermon is entitled Introduction, let me tell you a little bit about the author. Here's what the opening verse says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter wasn't the first person in his family to meet Jesus. It was actually his brother Andrew who had that privilege. But after spending a day with Jesus, he quickly got his brother and said, Simon, Simon, we have found the Messiah. It's not exactly something you hear people say every day. And I'm sure it grabbed his attention. Running to meet Jesus in whom rumors were already starting to circulate. His life was about to be changed forever. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter. The name Simon means to be a listener or a hearer. But Jesus had something much greater in store for this middle class fisherman and named him Peter, which means rock, and called him to be one of his disciples. After following Jesus for quite some time, there were some regular themes that Peter began to notice. Never before had he heard teaching with such authority. Never before had he seen people healed before his very eyes. Never before had he seen demons cast out with a word and miracles performed on a regular basis. So when this special question came, Peter was ready. Arriving in the Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to Jesus' response in Matthew 16. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Not sure about you, but that would be a real confidence booster for me. Unfortunately, not everything went well for this unofficial spokesman of the disciples. On the night Jesus was betrayed, after sharing a final meal together, he looked around at all 12 of his disciples and said to them, this very night you will fall away on account of me. Shocked at this revelation and appalled that the man he had followed had given his life to over the last three years would say something so audacious. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. The other disciples said the same. Later, that very night, sitting around a charcoal fire with some Roman guards, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. The New Testament starts with four books on the life of Jesus. The first three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all very similar and end as we would expect with the resurrection and Jesus saying some very encouraging words commonly referred to as the Great Commission. But John's a bit different. Oh, John absolutely talks about the resurrection. But then he adds this little side story about Peter. Remember, it's not like Jesus rises from the grave and the next day all his followers are making converts in Jerusalem. It was seven whole weeks before they did anything. You know what Peter did shortly after Jesus rose from the dead? He didn't preach. He didn't travel from town to town performing miracles. He did what was most comfortable to him. He went fishing. And it was on that fishing trip that Jesus taught him an important lesson about forgiveness. We won't know for sure on this side of heaven, but I wonder if it also was a key step in Peter developing some resilience. After the fishing trip, while gathered around a fire, that same charcoal fire, that would have reminded Peter what happened just a short time ago. Jesus gave him the opportunity to make amends. For each of the three times that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus asked his friend, Peter, do you love me? Three times reminding him in vivid detail that the guilty are forgiven. As he flipped the page from the end of John to the beginning of Acts, we see Peter leading the disciples and about a hundred other followers of Jesus, waiting for a gift that Jesus promised, a gift that would turn out to be the Holy Spirit. Now watch how beautiful this parallel is. The Jewish feast of Passover is the same as the Christian celebration of Easter, and it took place just two weeks ago. The Jews are celebrating their rescue from Egypt when the angel of death passed over their homes That the blood of the lamb was on the door frames. It was during Passover that Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, shed his blood for the forgiveness of all humanity, rescuing them from slavery of sin and death. What does this have to do with Peter? Listen to this because I think it's so cool. Seven weeks after Passover is the Jewish feast of Pentecost. What happened seven weeks after Israel's escape from Egypt, you ask? The giving Of the law at Mount Sinai, also known as the Word of God. And Israel became a nation committed to God. What happened seven weeks after Jesus' death and resurrection? The giving of the Holy Spirit, where the very Spirit of God would dwell in all who believe in Him. You think that would preach? As Jews come out of the temple during Pentecost, Peter meets them on the temple steps and preaches a powerful sermon calling them to believe in Jesus, repent of their sins, and to be baptized. And do you know what happened? 3,000 people came to faith and got baptized that very day. In the following chapters in Acts, we see Peter perform miracles. He gets arrested, he gets beaten for his faith, and continues to share the incredible message of the resurrected Christ. Nothing is going to stop him. By the time we reach Acts chapter 8, there's an intense persecution towards those who claim to be followers of Jesus, and the church is scattered. And then something else happens. Up to this point, Peter's entire ministry has been towards the Jews. But in chapter 10, God meets him in a vision and says that the good news is not for Jews alone, but for the whole world. Go and tell them about me. Peter understands failure. Peter has personally experienced persecution, and he wants the world to know about the life-changing relationship that is available in Jesus. And here we are back at 1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. One who understands the resilience and it comes with power. And he continues, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These five locations can be found in modern-day Turkey and set the, uh, at the time were firmly under Roman control. The order in which we read about them, much like the seven churches of Revelation, were most likely the order in which these letters would be delivered. There's a couple ideas here that I'd like to flesh out a bit for those of you who... And for those of you who enjoy taking notes, we're calling this first part seeing ourselves as resident aliens. The word scattered is actually the word diaspora in the original language, which was a common term for Jews who were dispersed throughout the world after the exile in 587 BC and are used to living as outsiders. But rarely is this term used for Gentiles. If you're new to church, a Gentile, simply anyone who's not a Jew. As we just came out of a sermon series on the life of David, here's a really quick summary of what took place after his kingship. David and his son Solomon held together a united nation of Israel. But Solomon's son Rehoboam made a whole mess of things, and the kingdom was split into two. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The kings of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every last one of them perfect score of 19 out of 19. Eventually God had enough and they were taken into captivity by the nation of Assyria. The kings of Judah did slightly better. They were batting at about 50%. But after four bad kings in a row, God sent them into captivity as well by the nation of Babylon. God's people were scattered, dispersed. Fast forward 600 years and a new persecution is taking place. Peter is writing this first letter about AD 64 or 65, during the reign of Nero and right after the burning of Rome, both of which are important historical facts to be aware of. And here's why. Nero is an egomaniac, and he wants to control everything that's taking place in Rome. If he isn't worshipped, push those people to the fringe of society. If he doesn't like your culture, shove it to the side. If he doesn't like your building, tear it down. But you know what's cheaper and quicker than tearing things down? Burning them down. The general belief was that Nero himself caused the great fires of Rome because of his lust to build and control everything that was taking place. In order to build and control, he had to tear it down and destroy. But surprise, surprise, people don't like when their homes are burnt to the ground, when their shops are burnt to the ground, or when their temples are burnt to the ground the Roman citizens start to rebel. Then in a stroke of pure, diabolical genius, Nero says, oh, it wasn't me who burned the city. It was the Christians. We have no proof of an empire-wide policy against Christians, but there were plenty of general outbursts against followers of Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles alike. They found themselves dispersed scattered. Resident aliens. Oh, they can build a home, but will it ever feel like home? Will your neighbors accept you, or will they persecute you because they just don't agree with you? They can live in a culture, but will it ever be a Christian culture? How will people respond to their belief system? With your Bibles open in front of you, take another look at this verse. To God's elect, strangers in the world. This story of Peter's audience is our story today because it's been part of the story ever since Abraham and Genesis. Our story is one of pilgrimage. In the very first book of the Bible, Abraham is called out of the city of Ur and wanders around the nation of Canaan. In the second book of the Bible, we see Israel as resident aliens in Egypt. The Pharaoh doesn't want them to be there and keeps punishing them and exposing them to slave labor. After crying out to God for deliverance, the Almighty sends Moses to rescue these people. And we see miracle after astounding miracle, only to have them wander around in the desert for the next 40 years. Certainly there are glimpses of reprieve. The Israelites do eventually arrive in Canaan, the land God promised to them. There is great security during the reign of Kings David and Solomon. And after the exile to Babylon, they eventually come back. But even these highlights leave people wanting. The enemies are never completely removed from Canaan. The end of David's reign is marred with family problems. And coming back to Jerusalem after exile still has the older generation weeping over what was lost. We aren't merely visiting the earth. We aren't tourists. We have homes and we raise our children and we engage with the culture, but we're longing for something more. We struggle deep down. We know things aren't right and we find ourselves longing for something better. It's not that life is bad. We just know something greater awaits. It's because we're pilgrims journeying through. We're on our way home, but we aren't home yet. So we settle as resident aliens, make the best of what's in front of us. This is an excerpt from a second century letter to a recipient known only as Dionysus. Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, their language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own, use a strange dialect, or live out of the ordinary. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens, and they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign country is a homeland to them, every homeland foreign territory. They marry like everyone else and have children, but do they not expose them once they are born? They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are found in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but participate in the life of heaven. They are obedient to the laws that have been made, and by their own lives they supersede these laws. They love everyone and are persecuted by all. They are not understood, and they are condemned. They are put to death and made alive. They are impoverished and made rich. They lack all things and yet abound in everything. They are dishonored and they are exalted in their dishonors. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Not only is Peter addressing us as resident aliens, this book serves as a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims who are living in this world. But journeying to what is next, This apostle, resilient in his faith, is writing to the church and encouraging us to be resilient in our faith. While I haven't yet said it directly, I hope you've been asking yourself the question, well then, how do I live here? One commentator phrases it like this. Does the Christian flee from this world, fight it, conform to it, or change it? We just finished reading a portion of a second-century letter. It doesn't sound like we're supposed to withdraw, but neither does it sound like we're totally to assimilate. We're not identical to our neighbors, but we're deeply involved in loving them. It leads us to the second part of our outline, our test as resident aliens. We're going to leave the introduction of 1 Peter for a moment and jump over to chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, and this is what we read. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in this world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Did you catch what Peter did there? I'll read verse 12 again, this time with a little more emphasis. Live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong, and see your good deeds, that they might glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter presents us with a test. You, resident alien, stranger in this world, live your life with such integrity, with hope-filled resilience, that you will be both incredibly offensive and stunningly beautiful. But let me make this abundantly clear. This is not either or. If you're listening to this and thinking, I've got this offensive thing down. I can pick fights with the best of them on Facebook. My coworkers hate me. My neighbors don't want to talk to me. That is not a win. There's being offensive and there's just being a jerk. But there's another side to the story. If everybody likes you, if nobody is ever offended by what you say, if you're the proverbial Mr. Nice Guy, then have you ever truly shared the Christian story? When we read the opening chapters of Acts, we see Christians who are being persecuted, imprisoned, and killed for their faith, yet they're growing like crazy. Certainly this is not an exhaustive list, but here are four different areas of the Christian worldview that are both incredibly offensive and stunningly beautiful. Unlimited forgiveness generous justice, sexual chastity, and sanctity of life. Time doesn't permit for me to go into great detail, but I'd love to give some examples. Understanding I'm only 40 years old, and I've never seen North America more divided than it is today. There are some very strong feelings based on your political party. This is what should happen during COVID. Where do you stand on Black Lives Matter? When it comes to personal matters, how can you forgive the guy who raped me, my boss who constantly disrespects me, or my coworker who's a Canucks fan? There's this tension, almost a cultural expectation, not to associate with people who have hurt you or are different than you. People find it offensive. But then there's this incredibly beautiful scene of a mom who lost her daughter because of a drunk driver, standing up at a daughter's funeral and saying, I've met the man who killed my daughter. I forgive him, and I hope he can forgive himself and come into relationship with Jesus. It is incredibly offensive to share the good news of Jesus with your Muslim neighbor and tell her the only way to heaven is through a personal relationship with God, not by following the five pillars of Islam, it is stunningly beautiful when a group of Christians in northern Alberta show the love of Jesus by cleaning the graffiti off a local mosque. Many people find the Christian ethic incredibly offensive. That God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, and made them female and, and male he created them. The only time Christians view sex as appropriate is in the marriage relationship. But it is stunningly beautiful to watch a husband love his wife as Christ loved the church and to watch the woman flourish because of the love and the support she receives and respect her husband in return. One of my friends is incredibly offended at some of the abortion laws in the States. How dare they, he blasted on Facebook, tell people when they can and cannot have an abortion. And yet it's stunningly beautiful. When a church family surrounds a single mom, provides her with a crib, a car seat, a year of diapers, free babysitting, and access to friends and counseling whenever she needs to talk, it takes incredible resilience to pass this test. We have three strategic directions as a a church. One of them I mentioned earlier, to be people of influence, to invite, include, and invest. We're also passionate about young families, and one of the reasons I'm so thrilled about our staff team. The third direction, and one I hope every church engages with, is the discipleship journey. Being a resident alien is difficult. Being resilient during this pilgrimage even more so. One of of my dreams for our church is that everyone who calls Ellerslie home would have at least one meaningful relationship at least one person who can love you enough to challenge you, one person who you can share both with your triumphs and your heartaches, one person who can be completely transparent with and incredibly loved in return. Talk is cheap. What are we doing about that? You may have heard Colton mention in the announcements earlier that we're holding a discussion on triads on Wednesday, April twenty-eighth, at 730. If you'd like to join us, email David at dholzman at erbc.ca. It won't even be an hour long. but will be a time of sharing about the value of triads. If you're unfamiliar with that term, triads are small groups of three to five people, all of the same gender, where you get to know one another in transparent environment. Talk about the scriptures and pray for one another. It's where you can talk about real life, grow in your relationship with Jesus. And best of all, meeting only a couple of other people makes it easy to get together. I've met people on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. Right now, I meet a couple of guys on Thursdays at 8. It can be absolutely life changing. We started by looking at ourselves as resident aliens, then a test as resident aliens. We finish off with our hope as resident aliens. Listen to verse 2 as Peter beautifully lays out what God has done for us. To God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. As Christians, we believe in one God who has existed in perfection for all of eternity In three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to remember that God existed in perfection for all of eternity. God doesn't need humanity to feel complete, to feel glorified, to feel perfect. He was perfect from the beginning. What God decided was to create us so that we might join him in worship, to grow in joy, because of his perfection, we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You would think we would have to do something to have this privilege in partnering with God, but if you look closely at verse two, it would seem that the work has already been done. God chooses us, the Spirit sanctifies us, and the, Jesus covers us with his blood. In other words, you are loved because you are loved because you are loved. Let's not rush past this idea. You are loved because you are loved. If you are married or have kids or one day look forward to that opportunity and right now have friends and family members you're close with, perhaps you've been asked the question, why do you love me? You might want to be careful how you answer. You might be tempted to say, I love you because of your beauty. I love you because you're wise. I love you because you take care of our family. I love you because you make me laugh. But there's a downside to that. The external beauty fades. Job loss occurs. What once was endearing might now be annoying. There's a better answer. If your significant other asks you the question, you can always say, you know, it was your beauty. It was your heart. It was your wisdom that initially attracted me to you. But now, I love you because I love you. Why do I love my three kids? Not because of anything they have done. I love them because I love them. And that's the reason God loves you. There is nothing you've done that has caused God to love you. But before the creation of the world, he chose to love you because he loves you. Jesus loves you because he loves you, because he loves you. And that's why he shed his blood for you. Not because of anything you have done, but because of his immeasurable love. Our hope as resident aliens is placed in the hope of Jesus, a true and better resident alien. Never do we find Jesus at home. He is the ultimate pilgrim journeying in exile. He left the glories of heaven to be born in a stable. Jesus had a traveling ministry and is never found in a home of his own. When a teacher of the law said that he would follow him wherever Jesus went, the master replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Even upon his crucifixion, Jesus was taken out of the city and up to a hill. But here is our undying hope. Jesus took the exile we deserve so that we might be brought back home. Brothers and sisters, fellow resident aliens, in Jesus Christ, we have a resilient hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage and for the book of 1 Peter. I thank you that we are resident aliens. And I thank you that at the times we feel as though something better is going to come. We know it to be true because you have called us home. And while we engage with this world, may we share the good news of Jesus with everybody we encounter as we look forward to a great and eternal destiny. God, give us resilience and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.